0: Chapter Twenty Five of Adam Bede This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Father Ziley. Adam Bede by George Eliot. Chapter Twenty Five The Games. The great dance was not to begin until eight o'clock, but for any lads and lasses who liked to dance on the shady grass before then, there was music always at hand. For was not the band of the benefit club capable of playing excellent jigs, reels, and hornpipes? And besides this, there was a grand band hired from Rossiter, who, with their wonderful wind instruments and puffed-out cheeks, were themselves a delightful show to the small boys and girls. To say nothing of Joshua Rand's fiddle, which, by an act of generous forethought, he had provided himself with, in case any one should be of sufficiently pure taste to prefer dancing to a solo on that instrument, meantime when the sun had moved off the great open space in front of the house, the games began. there were, of course, well-soaked poles to be climbed by the boys and youths, races to be run by the old women races to be run in sacks, heavy weights to be lifted by the strong men, and a long list of challenges to such ambitious attempts as that of walking as many yards as possible on one leg, feats in which it was generally remarked that Wiry Ben, being the lissomest, springest fellow in the country, was sure to be preeminent. To crown all, there was to be a donkey race, that sublimest of all races, CONDUCTED ON THE GRAND SOCIALISTIC IDEA OF EVERYBODY ENCOURAGING EVERYBODY ELSE'S DONKEY AND THE SORRIEST DONKEY WINNING. AND SOON AFTER FOUR O'CLOCK SPLENDID OLD MRS. IRWIN, IN HER DAMASK SATIN AND JEWELS AND BLACK LACE, WAS LED OUT BY ARTHUR, FOLLOWED BY THE WHOLE FAMILY PARTY, TO HER RAISED SEAT UNDER THE STRIPED MARQUEE, WHERE SHE WAS TO GIVE OUT THE PRIZES TO THE VICTORS staid formal miss lydia had requested to resign that queenly office to the royal old lady and arthur was pleased with this opportunity of gratifying his godmother's taste for stateliness old mr Donathorne, the delicately clean finely scented withered old man let out miss irwin with his air of punctilious acid politeness mr gawain brought miss lydia looking neutral and stiff in an elegant peach-blossom silk, and Mr. Irwin came, last, with his pale sister Anne. No other friend of the family, besides Mr. Gawain, was invited to-day. There was to be a grand dinner for the neighbouring gentry on the morrow, but to-day all the forces were required for the entertainment of the tenants. There was a sunk fence in front of the marquee, dividing the lawn from the park, but a temporary bridge had been made for the passage of the victors, and the groups of people standing or seated here and there on benches stretched on each side of the open space from the white marquees up to the sunk fence. "'Upon my word, it's a pretty sight,' said the old lady in her deep voice when she was seated, and looked round on the bright scene with its dark green background. "'And it's the last fate day,' I'm likely to see, unless you make haste and get married, Arthur. But take care you get a charming bride, else I would rather die without seeing her. "'You're so terribly fastidious, Godmother,' said Arthur. "'I'm afraid I should never satisfy you with my choice.' "'Well, I won't forgive you if she's not handsome. "'I can't be put off with amiability.' which is always the excuse people are making for the existence of plain people. And she must not be silly. That will never do, because you'll want managing, and a silly woman can't manage you. Who is that tall young man, Dauphin, with the mild face? There, standing without his hat, and taking such care of that tall old woman by the side of him. His mother, of course. I like to see that. What? What? "'Don't you know him, mother?' asked Mr. Irwin. "'That is Seth Bede, Adam's brother, a Methodist, but a very good fellow. "'Poor Seth has looked rather downhearted of late. "'I thought it was because of his father's dying in that sad way. "'But Joshua Rand tells me he wanted to marry that sweet little Methodist preacher "'who was here about a month ago, and I suppose she refused him.' "'Ah, I remember hearing about her.' "'But there are no end of people here that I don't know, "'for they're grown up and altered so since I used to go about.' "'What excellent sight you have,' said old Mr. Donathorne, "'who was holding a double glass up to his eyes, "'to see the expression of that young man's face so far off. "'His face is nothing but a pale, blurred spot to me, "'but I fancy I have the advantage of you when we come to look close. "'I can read small print without spectacles.' "'Ah, my dear sir, you began with being very near-sighted, "'and those near-sighted eyes always wear the best. "'I want very strong spectacles to read with, "'but then I think my eyes get better and better for things at a distance. "'I suppose if I could live another fifty years, "'I should be blind to everything that wasn't out of other people's sight, "'like a man who stands at a well and sees nothing but the stars.' "'See,' said Arthur, "'the old women are ready to set out on their race now.' "'Which do you bet on, Gwaine? "'The long-legged one, unless they're going to have several heats, "'and then the little wiry one may win.' "'There are the Poysers, mother, not far off on the right hand,' said Miss Irwin. "'Mrs. Poyser is looking at you. Do take notice of her.' "'To be sure I will,' said the old lady, giving a gracious bow to Mrs. Poyser. "'A woman who sends me such excellent cream cheese is not to be neglected.' "'Bless me, what a fat child that is she is holding on her knee! "'But who is that pretty girl with dark eyes?' "'That is Hetty Sorrel,' said Miss Lydia Donathorn. "'Martin Poyser's niece. "'A very likely young person, and well-looking, too. "'My maid has taught her fine needlework, "'and she has mended some lace of mine very respectably indeed, "'very respectably.' "'Why, she has lived with the Poyser six or seven years, mother. "'You must have seen her,' said Miss Irwin. "'No, I've never seen her, child, at least not as she is now,' said Mrs. Irwin, "'continuing to look at Hetty. "'Well looking, indeed. She's a perfect beauty. "'I've never seen anything so pretty since my young days. "'What a pity such beauty as that should be thrown away among the farmers.' when it's wanted so terribly among the good families without fortune. I dare say now she'll marry a man who would have thought her just as pretty if she had round eyes and red hair. Arthur dared not turn his eyes towards Hetty while Mrs. Irwin was speaking of her. He feigned not to hear, and to be occupied with something on the opposite side. But he saw her plainly enough without looking, saw her in heightened beauty, because he heard her beauty praised. For other men's opinion, you know, was like a native climate to Arthur's feelings. It was the air on which they thrived the best, and grew strong. Yes, she was enough to turn any man's head, and any man in his place would have done and felt the same. And to give her up after all, as he was determined to do, would be an act that he should always look back upon with pride. No, mother, and Mr. Irwin, replying to her last words, I can't agree with you there. The common people are not quite so stupid as you imagine. The commonest man who has his ounce of sense and feeling is conscious of the difference between a lovely delicate woman and a coarse one. Even a dog feels a difference in their presence. The man may be no better able than the dog to explain the influence the more refined beauty has on him, but he feels it, Bless me, Dauphin, what does an old bachelor like you know about it? Oh, that is one of the matters in which old bachelors are wiser than married men, because they have time for more general contemplation. Your fine critic of woman must never shackle his judgment by calling one woman his own. But as an example of what I was saying, that pretty Methodist preacher I mentioned just now told me that she had preached to the roughest miners, and had never been treated with anything but the utmost respect and kindness by them. The reason is, though she doesn't know it, that there's so much tenderness, refinement and purity about her. Such a woman as that brings with her airs from heaven that the coarsest fellow is not insensible to. Here's a delicate bit of womanhood or girlhood coming to receive a prize, I suppose, said Mr. Gawain. She must be one of the racers in the sacks who had set off before we came. The bit of womanhood was our old acquaintance, Bessie Cranage. Otherwise, Chad's Bess, whose large red cheeks and blousy person had undergone an exaggeration of colour, which, if she had happened to be a heavenly body, would have made her sublime. Bessie, I am sorry to say, had taken to her earrings again since Dina's departure, and was otherwise decked out in such small finery as she could muster. Anyone who could have looked into poor Bessie's heart would have seen a striking resemblance between her little hopes and anxieties and Hetty's. The advantage, perhaps, would have been on Bessie's side in the matter of feeling. But then you'll see they were so very different outside. You would have been inclined to box Bessie's ears, and you would have longed to kiss Hetty." Bessie had been tempted to run the arduous race partly from mere hedonish gaiety, partly because of the prize. Someone had said there were to be cloaks and other nice clothes for prizes, and she approached the Marquis, fanning herself with her handkerchief, but with exultation sparkling in her round eyes. "Here is the prize for the first sack race," said Miss Lydia taking a large parcel from the table where the prizes were laid, and giving it to Mrs. Irwin before Bessie came up. An excellent Gogram gown and a piece of flannel. "'You didn't think the winner was to be so young, I suppose, aunt,' said Arthur. "'Couldn't you find something else for this girl, and save that grim-looking gown for one of the older women?' "'I have bought nothing but what is useful and substantial,' said Miss Lydia.' adjusting her own lace. I should not think of encouraging a love of finery in young women of that class. I have a scarlet cloak, but that is for the old woman who wins. This speech of Miss Lydia's produced rather a mocking expression in Mrs. Irwin's face as she looked at Arthur, while Bessie came up and dropped a series of curtsies. This is Bessie Cranage, mother, said Mr. Irwin kindly. Chad Cranage's daughter. You remember Chad Cranage, the blacksmith? Yes, to be sure, said Mrs. Irwin. Well, Bessie, here is your prize. Excellent warm things for winter. I'm sure you have had hard work to win them this warm day. Betsy's lip fell as she saw the ugly, heavy gown, which felt so hot and disagreeable, too, on this July day, and was such a great ugly thing to carry. She dropped her curtsies again without looking up, and with a growing tremulousness about the corners of her mouth, and then turned away. "'Poor girl,' said Arthur, "'I think she's disappointed. I wish it had been something more to her taste.' "'She's a bold-looking young person,' observed Miss Lydia. "'Not at all one I should like to encourage.' Arthur silently resolved that he would make Bessie a present of money before the day was over, that she might buy something more to her mind. But she, not aware of the consolation in store for her, turned out of the open space where she was visible from the marquis, and throwing down the odious bundle under a tree, began to cry, very much tittered at the while by the small boys. In this situation she was descried by her discreet matronly cousin, who lost no time in coming up, having just given the baby into her husband's charge. "'What's the matter with ye?' said Bess the matron, taking up the bundle and examining it. "'Ye'n sweltered, yer son, I reckon, runnin' that fool's race, and here they'n gin ye lots o' good gogrum and flannel, as should have been gin by good rights to them as had the sense to keep away from such foolery. Ye might spare me a bit o' this gogram to make clothes for the lad. Ye are ne'er ill-natured, Bess. I ne'er said that on ye. Ye may take it all for what I care,' said Bess the maiden, with a pettish movement beginning to wipe away her tears and recover herself well i could do it if be ye want to get rid on it said the disinterested cousin walking quickly away with the bundle lest chad's niece should change her mind but that bony-cheeked lass was blessed with an elasticity of spirits that secured her from any rankling grief and by the time the grand climax of the donkey race came on Their disappointment was entirely lost in the delightful excitement of attempting to stimulate the last donkey by hisses while the boys applied the argument of sticks. But the strength of the donkey mind lies in adopting a course inversely as the arguments urged, which, well considered, requires as great a mental force as the direct sequence. And the present donkey proved the first-rate order of his intelligence by coming to a dead standstill, just when the blows were thickest. Great was the shouting of the crowd, radiant the grinning of Bill Downs, the stone saw, and the fortunate rider of this superior beast, which stood calm and stiff-legged in the midst of its triumph. Arthur himself had provided the prizes for the men, and Bill was made happy with a splendid pocket-knife, supplied with blades and gimlets enough to make a man at home on a desert island. He had hardly returned from the Marquis with the prize in his hand when it began to be understood that Wiry Ben proposed to amuse the company before the gentry went to dinner with an impromptu and gratuitous performance, namely a hornpipe, the main idea of which was doubtless borrowed. But this was to be developed by the dancer in so peculiar and complex a manner that no one could deny him the praise of originality. Wiry Ben's pride in his dancing, an accomplishment productive of great effect at the yearly wake, had needed only slightly elevating by an extra quantity of good ale to convince him that the gentry would be very much struck with his performance of his hornpipe and he had been decidedly encouraged in this idea by Joshua Ron, who observed that it was nothing but right to do something to please the young squire, in return for what he had done for them. You will be the less surprised at this opinion in so grave a personage when you learn that Ben had requested Mr. Ron to accompany him on the fiddle, and Joshua felt quite sure that though there might not be much in the dancing, the music would make up for it. Adam Bede, who was present in one of the large marquees where the plan was being discussed, told Ben he had better not make a fool of himself, a remark which at once fixed Ben's determination. He was not going to let anything alone because Adam and Bede turned up his nose at it. "'What's this, what's this?' said old Mr. Donathorne. "'Is something you've arranged with Arthur? "'Here's the clerk coming with his fiddle and a smart fellow with a nosegay in his buttonhole.' No, said Arthur, I know nothing about it. By Jove he's going to dance. It's one of the carpenters. I forget his name at this moment. It's Ben Carnage, wiry Ben, they call him, said Mr. Irwin. Rather a loose fish, I think. Anne, my dear, I see that fiddle-scraping is too much for you. You're getting tired. Let me take you in now, that you may rest till dinner. Miss Anne rose assentingly, and a good brother took her away, while Joshua's preliminary scrapings burst into the white cockade, from which he intended to pass to a variety of tunes by a series of transitions which his good ear really taught him to execute with some skill. It would have been an exasperating fact to him if he had known it that the general attention was too thoroughly absorbed by Ben's dancing for anyone to give much heed to the music. Have you ever seen a real English rustic perform a solo dance? Perhaps you have only seen a ballet rustic smiling like a merry countryman in crockery with graceful turns of the haunch and insinuating movements of the head. That is as much like the real thing as the bird waltz is like the song of birds. Wiry Ben never smiled. He looked as serious as a dancing monkey, as serious as if he had been an experimental philosopher, ascertaining in his own person the amount of shaking and the varieties of angularity that could be given to the human limbs. To make amends for the abundant laughter in the striped marquee, Arthur clapped his hands continually and cried, Bravo! But Ben had one admirer whose eyes followed his movements with a fervid gravity that equaled his own. It was Martin Poyser, who was seated on a bench, with Tommy between his legs. "'What dost think of that?' he said to his wife. "'He goes as pat to the music as if he was made of clockwork. "'I used to be a pretty good un at dancing myself when I was lighter, "'but I could never add hit it just to the air like that. "'It's little matter what his limbs are to my thinking,' returned Mrs. Poyser. "'He's empty enough in the upper story,' or he'd never come jiggin' on, stampin' in that way, like a mad grasshopper, for the gentry to look at him. They're fit to die with laughin', I can see. "'Well, well, so much the better. It amuses em, said Mr. Poyser, who did not easily take an irritable view of things. "'But they're goin' away now to have their dinner, I reckon. We'll move about a bit, shall we, and see what Adam Bede's doin'. He's got to look after the drinkin' and things. I doubt he hasna had much fun.' End of chapter twenty five Recording by Father Zile Detroit, Michigan, december two thousand eight DRZEILE dot net.